morning, everyone. Happy Memorial Day to all of you. Um, today we are going to continue our study through the book of Mark, and uh, we are going to be wrapping up that, uh, that book today, so we're going to be from verse um, uh, 29 all the way to the end. So um, as you know, you know, in the introduction that uh, Jeff opened us with when we started in the book of Mark, um, we got a little bit of a history, and uh, just to kind of recall some of that, um, Mark is probably the first book written in the New Testament, so it's the earliest record of Jesus' life and works that's, that was, that's recorded that we have of. Um, and the little bit that we know about Mark is that Mark was very close with Peter. And so uh, Pastor Jeff had said that really when you're reading Mark's book, it's very much like reading Peter's own story, Peter's version of his relationship, his encounter um, with Jesus. And here's what I find interesting. I think Mark's style of writing, right, it's very action-oriented. It's constantly moving. So he doesn't really come across as a chronicler, not like a theologian in his writing style, but more, I would say, like a photographer. That's the way that I think about it. He takes these snapshots, these images of Jesus' journey and experience, and he gives you these photos, and then you just flip into the next photo, the next photo, the next photo. It moves at a brisk pace. You know, it's constantly, constantly moving. And I think in some ways the movement feels like the way somebody who's serving, somebody who's a servant, right? Constantly on the move, doing, 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 active, no time to sort of pause and stop, but constantly in action. And that's how Mark describes Jesus. He describes Jesus as ministering, serving. In fact, it's in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. I think really that the heart of what Mark's gospel is about, he says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to be a ransom for many. And so you see this servant king picture. That's what we see in Mark. And the movement is so rapid that the most favorite word that Mark has in his book is the word immediately, right? Immediately is said 42 times in the book of Mark. And just in chapter 1, nine times we see the word immediately. So today, we're going we're gonna to start at verse 29 and read all the way through the end. So we're going to uh, post it on the screen here, but if you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Mark chapter 1, verse 29. Um, if you have your Bible app, you can open that, or if you'd like a Bible, we have them under the chairs in the center aisle, so please just ask the person who's sitting there. Don't be, feel awkward about it. They will pass you a Bible, but let's together read this chapter starting at verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew, with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought him to all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick, with various diseases, and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak, because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him 
and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also. For this, that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but he was out in a desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. Amen. So this is still the first day. Peter and his brother and James and John, these four fishermen have just been called by Jesus to follow him. And so we saw last week that in the first day they go, it's a Sabbath day, so they go into the synagogue, and Jesus begins to teach there. And he was so amazing in his teaching because they said he spoke with such authority they had never heard a teacher like this before. And so I, I love to see what's unfolding here through the eyes of these disciples who had just made the decision to follow him. And I'd like to ask this question as we, as we look at this text today. Why these stories? What's Mark's point in picking these stories? I mean, there's so much about Jesus. Why does he land on these stories? And what do you think God's posture is towards people, towards us? What, what's, what's the attitude, the posture that Jesus has towards people and therefore that God has towards us? Well, it's a busy day because it's after he had preached, he had cast out a demon from a demon-possessed man. And this is where the text picks up in verse 29. It says, And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. So here it is. These four guys come back to Peter's house, and they bring their new friend Jesus with them. And so we, we get a little bit of detail that Peter's mother-in-law was actually sick at the time. That didn't seem to deter Peter at all from bringing guests over. You know, it's, it just seems, you know, in those days, culture was very big on hospitality. When a guest came, you took care of them. You served them, even if it was costly to you, right? Jesus tells a story that if a, if a friend comes to you at midnight and you have nothing to give them, you would knock on your neighbor's door and say, give me some bread because someone has come now. That's the sense of hospitality that this culture had towards when guests come. But it's a, it's, it's a unique and difficult situation here because you see that there's other things going on, other dynamics happening in a home, right? Now, a little interesting fact, Peter's house has actually been excavated, or they think, what is Peter's house, has been excavated. And they've dug that up, and, and that house is actually about 100 yards from where the synagogue is. So people assume that that synagogue where Jesus spoke at, and then he walked over not too far away to the house that Peter lived in, and that, that house has a courtyard, typical of houses in those days, has a courtyard in the front that's, that's closed off. And then the house itself is just a couple of rooms, 
And then you have a stairway on the outside that leads to the roof. And oftentimes, because it was hot, it was on the roofs that people would sleep. One of the things that I saw in India, too, was many of the times when, when it was as hot, people would just take a mat and go on the roof and sleep because it was just too hot to be indoors. And this was probably Peter's house. And when you stand on the roof and you look, you see the synagogue over here, very close, and you see the, the Sea of Galilee on the other side over there. And so this, this was Peter and this home. Here's a few things we learn about him. He's married, right? Because he's got a mother-in-law. Now, interesting thing is that his, his, uh, his wife's mom probably had no older adult sons because it was a res responsibility of the sons to take care of the, the, the mother and the father. And so the fact that Peter and his wife is taking care of her and she lives with them might indicate that she doesn't have any, any, any sons. But it also shows a little glimpse of the character of the person who Peter is, right? But Peter has a domestic situation, right? He's, he's a married man. And what we find interesting is that in the book of Corinthians, Paul makes a statement, I think it's in chapter 9, where he says, hey, isn't it okay for all of us disciples, apostles, to travel with our believing wife, just like Cephas did? You get this picture that this was not just the beginning of Peter's journey with Christ. It was a ministry that he and his wife were going to do together. Long into the future, what we find is that he and his wife are traveling together, serving Jesus, spreading the word. And so we see this beautiful picture of how together they're serving. And, and tradition tells us that they were also killed together. In Rome, we find out that they were arrested and they were crucified. First, Peter's wife was taken out. And, and tradition has it that his last words to her was, remember the Lord. And she was crucified before him. And then he was taken out and crucified. But he said, please, I don't deserve to die like my master, my savior. Please crucify me upside down. But that's Peter's story. And Mark here, some of these firsthand accounts of these stories, probably from Peter. Peter remembers this night very, very well, right? Because Jesus finds out that his mother-in-law is sick and it tells us what does he do he came to her and took her by the hand in verse 31 and lifted her up and immediately her fever left her no words no special kind of words come out of his mouth not even an ask jesus would you heal her he simply sees a need and he responds here's the interesting thing especially in those days but i think a little bit in our minds too Sickness was often associated with judgment of God. That's how people consider that if you were sick, is that God's judgment on you? Right? When bad things happen, there's a tendency for us to think, is that judgment? Right? Jesus makes a reference to that. He says, do you think that those who died when the tower fell, right, were any worse? Or do you think this man was born blind because of, remember they said, whose sin was it? Was it his sin or his parents' sin? He said, neither, but so that the Son of Man can be glorified. But that's the mindset. I think that's just a little bit of how we are. When bad things happen, hard things happen, we assume something in me or must be connected. And so we connect it. And so our understanding of the finger of God is 
judgment, right? It's coming down. Like sometimes we say that as a joke. Lightning's going to strike you from heaven. I mean, you know, we, we, we joke around about it. And so the way Jesus responds is he says, let me show you what the finger of God truly is like. Gentle, compassionate. He lifts her up and allows her to stand up. And immediately she's healed. Immediately she's whole again. She's well again. And I think God is trying to say to all of us too, my posture towards you is good. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? The text tells us, continuing in verse 31, that, and, and then she began to serve them. It's a little dicey passage here, so I'm going to be careful about you know, how, I, how I sort of deal with that. I'm not going to say much about it, because you sort of have to ask, like, these guys couldn't serve themselves. Like, what were they doing? You know, she was sick. All of a sudden, she had to get up, and she just healed. And now she's got to serve all of them, right? It just feels a, it feels a little bit, you know, uh, hmm. Unfair. Anyway, <laughs> um, but I think a few things from it. First, it shows her healing was complete. There was no need for her to have a little bit more recovery. She was well. The other thing is that the word serving is actually the same word used earlier in the chapter when Jesus is in the desert and he's being tempted and it tells us that the angels were ministering to Jesus, ministering, serving. That's the same word that's used here. And I do think Jesus is saying, the Son of Man came to serve. The serving has gotten a bad rap. We look at it as something that lowly people do or people who are, 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 are sort of taken advantage of. But there's a beauty, there's an importance to serving. And you know, it's, 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 it's who Christ is. I think he's showing that that is how we're designed to serve one another. Not to take advantage of it. You know, I would probably say some of the biggest source of arguments that I have in my, my marriage often becomes a measurement of how much serving I've done. How much, you know, you're always sort of feeling this, wait a minute, I've done this, I've done this. Right? That's the misuse of the word serving. It should be our delight to serve. That's what Jesus is delighted to do. But as soon as she's healed, it says by sundown in verse 32, word got out. Word got out to all the town. And it says in verse 33, the whole town gathered outside of Peter's door. What a scene. Right? What a scene. It also shows us the desperation that a person feels when you're suffering, when you're dealing with something for such a long time, and if there's any glimpse of hope, it awakens in you, is it possible? Could it be? That's what we heard, and they all come. I don't know what it's like. It's probably not the whole town. It's probably a hyperbole, but it says it was got to be a massive scene. What kind of sicknesses were they dealing with? Blindness, paralysis, life-threatening injuries, things that people have been dealing with for a long time. Can you just picture that scene? Lines of people lining up outside Peter's door and Jesus healing one after another, after another, after another, after another. How long did that go on? I don't know. But if Peter says, this was remarkable, you know what, church? There has never been a night like this in the history of humanity. That's what Peter remembers. That's what Mark is telling to us. There's never been a night when something so amazing like this has happened that every single person that came were healed. Can you imagine the way 
those people, after being healed, returned back home. Oh, the freedom. The freedom of what they had been suffering and fighting for goodness knows how long, no longer theirs to steal with anymore. Can you imagine the life-changing, the relief? And that's what Jesus did. That's the posture of God towards mankind. The finger of God wants to touch, to heal, to help. And it says that he healed many who were sick, and he even cast out many demons as well. And so as, as, the, as the passage goes on, it's a long night. I don't know how long. It doesn't tell us. But I assume that if there was a crowd like this, it's got to have gone for a long time. 10 o'clock? Midnight? I don't know. But in verse 35, here's what it tell us, tells us. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark. Can you believe that? He, Jesus, Jesus departed and went to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Jesus rose up while it was still not yet light, even though the night before, that long day, and he had been serving and up and busy and working. But you get a little window into the rhythm in Jesus' life, right? That being alone with the Father was something really important to him. He needed it. He, he, he looked forward to it, it seems. And you know, it's interesting because a little while after he's there, it says that Simon and those that were with him searched for him, and they found him. And they said, everyone is looking for you. Here's the interesting thing. There's probably never a convenient time to pull away from everybody and just stop and just spend it with the Lord. Life just doesn't deal you, give you clean buckets, you know, neat categories. Ah, uh, now it's the case, right? Jesus had been tired, up all night, wakes up early in the morning. Lots of people are looking for him. He's in demand. He has things to do. But he carves out the time to be alone with the Father. That's what I've learned in my life is that I will never find the perfect time. And I have, you know, I like to have things all neat and tidy and organized in my life, get things into nice little buckets. Here's what happens. It just all kind of gets all chaotic and messed up. But the truth is, it's in the busyness, the hecticness, the demands of life that we have to create our own rhythm to be able to pull away and to spend time with our Father. If Jesus needed it, and he looked forward to it. I think it's just telling me, how much more do I need that, right? How much more do we need that? How much more value does that give to our life? But Jesus says to them, look, let's keep going. Let's keep continue to the other towns, right? In verse 38, let's go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that's why I came. You know, I have a message to give, and that's why I'm here. I will heal people. I will help people. That's my posture towards them. But, but there's so much to do on that, that the occasion for my coming isn't just for that, but it's to share a message, a good news. So I have to continue on. I have to journey on. So as we continue through the story in, in verse 40, we see what? And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling beside him. If you will, you can make me clean. A leper came to him. Think about this. Word of Jesus spreading like wildfire that, that everyone...
everybody's starting to hear about this. Can you just imagine the scene at the time, the conversations? You don't need social media, right? You don't need any kind of technology. Word spreads when something is happening. People know, people find out. And everybody's curious, even to a man who was probably living in a leper colony. And this leper came to Jesus. Now, Luke writes in his account, I don't know if you know this, but Luke is actually a doctor, right? So Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts. Luke writes in his account that he says that this man was full of leprosy. What that tells us is that he was in the advanced stages of leprosy. So imagine, and I'll get to leprosy in a second, but somebody in that condition coming into a crowded place where there's people there, but this man didn't seem to care. He wanted help. He was desperate. And if it meant risking the customs, risking the, 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 the attacks, and, and often it's it said that sometimes they would say that the Pharisees, if they see a leper coming, would throw stones at them to make sure they moved away from the public. But this man didn't care because his need was so great. And he had heard that there was hope. And he comes even in his advanced stages. Now, the interesting thing about leprosy is that you don't go to a doctor in those days if you have leprosy. You go to the priest. That was what the law required. You go to the priest, you show yourself, and you start to go through a process with the priest where he examines you and tries to quarantine you for a while, shaves your head, shaves your eyebrow, shaves all the hair off your body, and just continues this process of checking, checking, checking. Because you don't want to assume that somebody who has some sort of a, just, just a minor skill ailment or eczema or something like that is leprosy. But they do have a process of checking. And when you finally have, when the priest determines that it truly is leprosy, you are declared unclean. And you leave community. We don't know this man's name. We don't know anything about him. We don't know his story. Was he, was he married? Was he rich? Was he poor? Was he a businessman or a farmer? Did he have kids? Or was, what about his parents or siblings? It doesn't tell us anything about, them, about him personally. But here's what we can know. There came a day, there came a day in his life, and the priest had wrapped up his examination and he said, you are unclean, you have leprosy. You need to separate away from community. That was the last time that he would sit at a table with his family and have a meal. That's probably the last time he would be in a town center or a store to buy something. That's the last time that he would feel the touch of another human being in his entire life. The day the priest declares him unclean, he's no longer free, no longer allowed to be with people. And so you see when it says this, a leper came to him imploring, begging, kneeling, you understand, right? In the advanced stages, leprosy is a, is a skin condition. You know, and, and it spreads. It's contagious. It's not actually highly contagious, but it is contagious disease. Um, what it does is it causes a discoloration, causes lumps, all kinds of skin um, issues. Leprosy still exists in this world today. It hasn't been wiped out. You'll see leprosy in India. You'll see it in China. You'll see it in the continent of Africa. 
right? And, and you still have these colonies, right, where, where uh, lepers have to live. And, and you know, it, it's just horrific. The disfigurement that it causes, the way it completely just alters your face, your features, in a way that makes it hard for people to feel comfortable and to look at. It also affects your nerves. It affects your nerves in a way that it causes you a neuropathy. What that means is it's like you're under anesthetic, anesthesia, right? You just don't feel things anymore. And a lot of times what happens is because you don't feel, because you're not aware, you're not reacting to stimulus around, right? So it's not unusual that they would touch something that's hot or something heavy could fall on it and they wouldn't realize it. Or they would grip something so tightly that they're not feeling anything. There's no sensation. There's no feeling. And what happens is that their limbs, their extremities begin to be affected to the point where it starts to fall off. You'll see with leprosy, your fingers will just fall, fall off. It dies. It falls off. Your ears can fall off. Your nose can fall off. Right? Your, your body, your, your entire limb. And that's actually a common thing that happens in the advanced stages. Leprosy can be a condition that b- about 9 to 15 years, and then eventually a person would die from that, especially in those days. But in the advanced stages, when he says it was full of leprosy, when Luke uses that term, full of leprosy, 8 years, 10 years maybe, this man has been experiencing this, this condition, this suffering, this isolation. He's been dealing this for a long, long time. And he comes to Jesus and he says, if you will, you can make me clean. Right? He doesn't say, heal me. He says, make me clean. And I picture this scene again. You know, take a picture that Mark is giving to us. What does that look like? A leper in that advanced stage is coming. Why did the crowd let him through? I actually think they wanted to know what's going to happen. Like, oh my gosh, what... What is going to happen right now? What are we going to see? And so they move in some way. They allow the leper to come to Jesus, and there's this encounter. And the curiosity, the intensity of that scene. I mean, I wish there was a photo. That's what, that's what Mark gives to us here, a, li- a quick photo. Now, the thing is, in Jewish culture, leprosy was also considered a consequence of sin. People said, you know, the same thing, just illnesses in general, but leprosy especially has always been associated with sin. And I think in some ways there is a good analogy, not that it's associated with sin, but, but analogy to the way leprosy spreads, right? It starts out small, almost unperceptible, and then it starts to spread and take over. It's just the way sin does in my life, right? Sin begins to be something that can suddenly take over. And a neuropathy, a, a numbness happens in my own heart. Because now it becomes easier and easier and easier to go deeper into that sin. Why? Because you become numb to it. It's not as hard. It's not as difficult to behave poorly. That's the way the sin is. Sin encroaches further and further to that, to that your conscience, your sense of right and wrong, your perspective of, of truth becomes numb and lost and unable to feel and, un- and apprehend the truth anymore. And so, interestingly here, we see when this man comes up and he says, will you make me clean? Ever since the law has been given in the Old Testament, 
Do you know how many Israelites have been cured or cleansed or healed of leprosy? Zero. That we have recorded at least zero. Now, here's a, here's a few that have been healed. Moses experienced leprosy. When he was talking to God at the burning bush, he put his hand inside of his robe and he pulled it out and his hand was leprous. And he put it back in and pulled it out and it was healed. So there was an experience, but that was before the law was given, right? And then Miriam, Moses' sister, when she said something to rebel against God's plan, she was covered with leprosy and it says Aaron interceded on her behalf and she was healed. And there's one other story in the Old Testament of a man being healed. Naaman the Syrian. I don't know if you remember this story, but it was during the time of Elijah, the prophet Elijah, that a Syrian, not an Israelite, he comes to Elisha and says, I have leprosy with his servant and he wants to be healed. And Elijah tells him to go and wash yourself in the Jordan River seven times and you will be healed. And I won't get into that story, you know, because he starts to wonder why the heck do I need to do that when there's plenty of great rivers where I'm from. But he does it anyway and he's healed. And he's healed of leprosy. But since the law has been given to Moses, since the law has come into place to guide the Israelites, there has never been a recorded time when somebody has been healed of leprosy. So that means this is the very first time we're seeing something, the very first time a recorded event of somebody being healed from leprosy. And how does Jesus react to this scene? It tells us Jesus moved with pity stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. I love that phrase that Mark uses. He says, moved with pity. Actually, that term is really strong. It says he was gripped. And even more strongly, the same word is actually seized. He was overcome with such compassion. He reached out his hand and says, yes, I will. Be clean. I just want us, church, just to remember that. Take that photo and carry that in your mind, in your heart. When you are struggling with something and you wonder, Jesus, look at what's happening. Look how messed up. Look how much I struggle. Look how much I've done that's wrong. How does Jesus look at you? You always wonder. Right? You remember when Peter sinned? I mean, I mean, Peter rejected Jesus, right? And Jesus said, look, you'll reject me three times before the cock crows. And it says immediately after that scene, what happens? The cock crows, and there's a verse that says, and Peter turned and saw Jesus. While he was in trial there, their eyes met. Church, I'll tell you this. The most important question in your life is what do you think those eyes are saying? You failure. I knew it. How could you? You let me down. Or it's okay. It's okay. I know how broken this world is. I know how infectious sin is. I know how deadly this battle is. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm here. I know how hard it is. My grace is sufficient for you. I am with you. He was gripped. He was overcome. That's the real finger of God. When Jesus' hands reaches out and touches a man with leprosy, that's the posture of God towards those who are hurting. So tender, so compassionate, so loving. 
So imagine then this, this scene as it continues to unfold here. <clears throat> Let me get my notes right. All right. So picture that, right? Jesus says to him, you know, I will be clean. And it tells us here, and immediately, the word immediately that Mark loves, immediately the leprosy left him, verse 42, and he was made clean. Can you picture that scene? If he was in the advanced stages of leprosy, because his skin, his face would be completely deformed and disfigured from that. All of a sudden, right before everybody's eyes, limbs coming back, maybe ears coming back, body being healed, fully restored, whole again, hair, all of that, just returning in a way. What a sight. What a scene. Everybody who saw it will never forget what they saw. Certainly this man will never forget. He'll never shut up, even though Jesus tells him to shut up. He's going to tell everybody, Jesus did this. I want to let you know, Jesus did this. Look what Jesus did to me. This is what Jesus did. But here's what Jesus tells him. He says, listen, in verse 44, and he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for proof to them. Oh, this is where it gets really interesting, I think. <clears throat> if you were a priest in those days, you probably pronounced a lot of people with leprosy. So you know that ceremony, you know that process, but you've never done the process of reinstating someone <laughs> back from leprosy. So here's this man, right, able to go to the priest and show himself. And if you're a priest, you must be like talking to your priest friends, like, you know, have you ever done this ceremony? Do you know where it is? Do you know what I'm supposed to do? What does that look like? I don't know. I've never done it before. I've never heard of it. I don't know. Well, let's look it up, right? Well, sure enough, the Bible does say what it is. It's in Leviticus chapter 13, when you're pronounced with le uh, leprosy. And Leviticus chapter 14, when you're pronounced clean. Check this out, church. I didn't put it on the screen, but let me just read to you what it says. If, if the case of leprous disease is healed in the leprous person, the priest shall command the person to take for him who is to be cleansed. This is chapter 14, verse 3 onward of Leviticus chapter 14. The priest shall command them to take for him who is to be cleansed, two live clean birds, already getting weird, and cedar wood, and scarlet yarn, and hyssop. Uh, we don't have to unfold, unpack all that because I'm not exactly sure how all of that looks like, but cedar, cedar wood, scarlet yarn, and hyssop. And the priest shall command them the, to kill one of the birds in the earthenware vessel over fresh water. Got it so far? Two birds, both alive, you take the one over the fresh water and you kill it. You kill that bird and he shall take the live bird with the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop and dip all of that into that water and the, and the bloody water now and the live bird in the blood of the bird that was killed over fresh water. And he shall sprinkle it seven times on him who is to be cleansed of the leprous disease. Then he shall pronounce him clean and shall let the living bird go into the open field. What an interesting little strange picture, right? Strange story. So these priests are doing this, or you got to do this. You got to take two birds and you got to kill one. And you have to have the cedar wood and the scarlet yarn and the hyssop. 
and you dip the bird, the live bird, into the blood, stained water. Now that live bird is stained with blood. Interesting here, right? Doesn't say kill an ox, doesn't say kill a lamb, but a fellow, one just like it, a kinsman. And when you are dipped in the blood of your kinsman, you're taken to the field and released and let go. There's that wet, blood-stained bird, free, flying. My chains are free, I've been, my chains are gone. I've been set free. What more do we need than to see the picture of the gospel here? This is what this is all about. And what I love about this is that Jesus wanted this to be a testimony, proof to the priests. It shows us very clearly how much Jesus cared that even the priests, that they will come to believe. They will have evidence that we have to connect the dots and realize later when Jesus is crucified and sacrificed, this is how it was all meant to be. And that's what I want us to take away from this. I want us to recognize the cost, right? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to be a ransom for many. That's what Jesus has done for us. He's taken his body and he sacrificed it for us. He's died on the cross because that's how much he wants to do anything and everything necessary to get us back. That's the posture of our God towards us. That's what serving, that's what ministering is all about. Our God says, I don't care what it costs. I want you back. I want you back. I want to be with you forever. I love the beauty of who our God is. And Mark picks these stories, I think, from the experiences that he didn't see firsthand, but he probably heard it all from, from Peter. And he gives us these little pictures, these little snapshots. Do you see? Do you see who this Jesus is? Do you see his character? Do you see his posture towards you? Nothing is going to stop him. He is gripped, seized with compassion for you. But he will do whatever it costs to set us free. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me just pray. Father, um, that's overwhelming to be loved that much and to be asked nothing in return. You are so incredibly good to us. Help us to remember that. Help us to be able to hold on to that especially at the hardest, darkest moments of our life when we wonder, is this because of some failure in my life? Lord, we just need that reminder. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for recording these stories, these images, so that we can be encouraged and be hopeful. Today, 2,000 years later, as we sit and listen to these words again, to know that you are for us. We are grateful for your love. We are overwhelmed by your love for us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.